Hi, I'm Byron Anderson, and I'm a PE. Hi, I'm Ted Corliss, and I'm a JD. Welcome to the PEJD podcast. We're going to jump back into some issues associated with the repairs to large losses in the state of Florida. We're going to really look at this issue of the kinds of legal conflicts that are commonly associated with claims that are filed on insurance policies where the claims are represented by either a licensed community association manager or the board of directors of a condominium association. Byron, oh, jump into the idea here. I, you know, there, one of the things I think it would be great for us to talk about here is simple things, you know, like the statute of limitations, or we could talk about the statute of repose. What, what questions do you have on those fronts? Well, I, I think I have a question on both of those, actually. Uh, my first one is, is, can you tell me from a legal perspective, in layman's terms, hopefully, what is a statute of limitations? A statute of limitations uh, is a objectively stated statutory identification of a period of time during which or from which the damage occurs to the building and the amount of time that they must report that damage to their insurance company. It also means once you have a claim filed with an insurance company, if that insurance company denies that claim for whatever reason, from the date they deny it, you have a period of time from that date of denial where you must seek legal redress for your damages from the breach of contract. And so, for example, we have cases right now where we are representing boards of directors of buildings that were damaged by Hurricane Irma, which was in September of 2017. Many of those buildings had been damaged to the degree that they were unoccupied for several months. The fact that that period of time, uh, whatever period of time passes, it doesn't change the statute of limitations uh, because most of these policies, they kind of use a little bit of a statute of limitation language that it just says you have to notify us for about the damages within a certain period of time. And if you don't, then your claim can be denied. But then the other issue is if you have a denied claim in the state of Florida, it is a contract claim against the insurance company. And as such, it has a five-year statute of limitations. And, but there's all, this other little guy out there called the statute of repose. Have you seen or heard of the statute of repose? Uh, I'm curious from, from a legal and, again, breaking it down to, to layman's terms, what is the difference between a statute of repose and a statute of limitations? Or what is a statute of repose? Why do we have right. two different ones? Right. All right. So the, the, the best example I've ever seen of explaining a statute of repose is the old forceps in the gut problem in a medical malpractice case. Let's, let's think about that. All right, let's say that in 1980, you went to the hospital because you had an appendicitis. And during that procedure, they opened up your gut. And when they were working on you, they either left forceps in you or a sponge. The sponge is usually the problem. 
that's why you'll ever, anytime you've ever heard of or seen a medical procedure in a surgical environment, they will always count their sponges. And that's to make sure we didn't leave any inside the patient. Doesn't sound good, Ted. That does not sound good at all. <laughs> no. All right. So this, if, if a doctor does that, then they could be sued for medical malpractice. All right. So first question, when did the statute of limitations begin to run? And again, that's from the act that caused the damages to when it is resolved. Well, if they left a sponge in 1980, you would have had two years as a statute of limitations to sue the doctor. But what if you didn't find out about the sponge or the forceps until several years later when you suddenly discover that you're having stomach cramps and when the doctor goes in and they do an x-ray, they find the material left behind. All right, so the statute of limitations in that context begins to run from when you discovered the injury. So when you knew knew or should have known is the, the term that I always hear. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily should have known because that's kind of where the statute of repose comes in. Because what the statute of repose says is, we get it, you, you can't res- make people responsible for knowing that they have this problem because there was nothing that put them on notice of that because they weren't having pain for a few years. But the statute of repose says there is an element of fairness, at least that's the way it's always been pitched, that, okay, we get it. If in 1980 somebody left a sponge in your gut and you didn't discover it until 2019 or 2020, you can't really argue in that context, the statute of repose says that it's a two-year statute of limitations from the date you discovered it. Well, you didn't discover it for, for 20 years. So what the statute of repose says is it puts a boundary on that because the, and I'll explain why in a minute, what the statute of repose says is, all right, you had the surgery in 1980. We're going to give you a 10-year statute of repose. And in that context, you it says that even if you don't discover it until decades later, you can't sue the doctor because even though you technically filed your lawsuit within two years of the injury, statute of repose says after the passage of enough time, we're not going to allow you to see the doctor. Now, let's put this obviously back into the context of building damage. One of the most common issues that we run into with these buildings, and I know I've seen work that you've done on buildings that are on the water, is that many times the buildings are, the building envelope is not supporting the environment, meaning that the water is getting into the building in a variety of ways. It's a very common problem in Florida. The, if, for example, there was a storm and Hurricane Irma came along and you didn't, you, you didn't realize that it actually had lifted up some of the, the ceiling, t- or the damage came in through some element of the building component, the, the statute of limitations would say or it'll start to run once you discover that you actually had damage that might very well have been uh, caused by the storm. 
But again, it gets kind of complicated because insurance companies have built into their policies, not just the statute of limitations, but they've also created these notice provisions, which says, if you know about damage that may be associated with a claim, you have to notify us within some reasonable period of time. Most of the time, that's two years. But of course, insurance companies should be notified sooner than that if you know you're having water intrusion and you have reason to believe that it had it arose from the event. Got it. Uh, the reason, yeah, and see, one of the reasons why these kinds of things get, and fairly so, that insurance companies are putting boundaries on these is because of this very simple issue, and that is that insureds are always looking to save money on insurance because they they either they're working with insurance companies that they didn't really want to work with or they've had a claim and they weren't satisfied or they just feel like they need to see if they can get a cheaper premium. And so the insureds will oftentimes, and when boards turn over, they're, they're like, hey, you know what I saw here? We're paying $35,000 a year for insurance. I think I can get it for 20. And that's a, that's a big reason to move. But if there are claims or there are damages that have occurred to those buildings over time, and the insurance companies are bound, they're bouncing around. There's been three insurance companies since the Irma storm or something crazy like that. How are you figure out who owes it? I mean, and that's why we have to put some boundaries on when you are aware how much time can pass before you have waived your claim or after they deny your claim and say, you know what, we did a comprehensive investigation and we do not believe this damage is covered under your policy. When that happens, then that starts that time frame. And I mean, can you can you kind of explain how hidden and latent these damages can be to these buildings? I mean, it's, it can be pretty hidden. Oh, it can be absolutely hidden. I mean, that's a you know you you touched on Hurricane Irma uh, a while ago. I mean, that's a I'm spending a bulk of my time right now dealing with Hurricane Irma related damages, which is coming up on three years uh, ago. And what happens is that you get damage that occurs to the building envelope. Um, openings get created. Uh, water starts to get into the building. But that water isn't noticed um, because it, it either is drying up or it's just not getting enough. You're not getting the level of saturation into the building itself that the owners are starting to notice that damage. So what's happened is that latent or hidden damage has occurred to the building envelope as a result of, in this case, a hurricane event, but it's not until months or years later that enough bulk water gets into the envelope of the building, being it, be it the roof, the walls, the fenestrations or windows, whatever it may be. Uh, it's not until enough of that water gets in that it is noticed by the owners and then it becomes real damage, you know, and that's that's one of the things that kind of uh, that, that I'm always puzzled a little bit is that, you know, the the idea that a defense that insurance companies use is late notice. Well, the the owner, you know, somehow or another, it feels like they're painting the owner in a bad light by saying that's late notice. Well, if they didn't know that the damage was there, how could they know to, how could they file or notify the insurance company any earlier. So, I mean, the, the other thing that you touched on there briefly that I want to expand upon a little bit, and it's been a, 
kind of a thorn in my side over uh, several projects throughout my career is what happens whenever the board changes hand. I mean, inevitably, either you know through the process of whatever it may be an, an insurance claim or the maintenance of the of the property or in my case uh, restoration projects or renovation projects all of a sudden the board changes hands and we have a new guard uh, to to answer to which is which is really our client and it can be one of the most challenging and difficult from my perspective parts of uh, the, this, this cycle or this, this uh, job that we're trying to do to help protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public is that you're basically working for one owner and one personality. And as I said in an earlier podcast, communication is so critical. And then all of a sudden, you're, uh, those personalities and, and people change to somebody else, and you're given a new set of directives and a new vision to work from but yet you're working through sometimes years-long processes to get to an end goal, and now you all of a sudden have an, a new leader that changes that goal for you. Uh, speak to me a little about some complications that that can cause. Oh, it's so important, and it happens so regularly. Uh, I had a sinkhole claim once that was protracted. Uh, it took five years to resolve from the date they originally submitted the claim to when we ultimately got the insurance company to cover the loss. And the board turned over four times. Wow. And I mean, and, and, and the real truth about, and, and I'm the one thing that I never do maybe, and you can, I'd love to hear your answer to this too, but I get involved in, in big insurance losses, large losses after the claim has been submitted after the insurance company has done its investigation and they have reached a conclusion the board brings me in to look at that conclusion and tell them whether the insurance company is right, whether they're wrong, or whether we don't know, and then base uh, some kind of solution. But if you've got a situation where the insured is coming to me, we had this happen very recently. I just had a call last week where the insured wanted me to tell them, should I file an insurance claim? And I don't give answers to that question. And the reason for that is it's not an entirely legal one. It's practical. Um, depending on the nature of the damages, filing an insurance claim can be can really change the future of the property. Uh, an example of that would be that you file a sinkhole claim for, a, say, 15-building property, and when they come out to investigate, they find sinkhole activity, but they don't, they're not able to connect up the sinkhole activity with any damage to the building. And so there's, even though they say, okay, well, we found sinkhole activity, but those cracks are because of improper maintenance. Well, now you have a denied claim, and there's really not much that a lawyer can do for you. But now you've been told that there is unremediated sinkhole activity under that building. And so you don't have resources to pay that, but you now have a situation where you're going to have to fix that sinkhole activity and you're on the board of directors of an association and you tell them, oh, hey, we filed an insurance claim and number one, it's not covered, but more importantly, number two, we, we're going to have to assess to do the repairs because we just got a letter from the insurance company that said, not only is your claim denied, 
But the underwriters are saying we don't insure buildings that are sitting on top of unremediated sinkhole activity. You got 90 days. And so that's the part where I always tell insureds the decision to file an insurance claim can materially affect the value of the property. And that's one of the reasons why generally I promote only filing claims in, when there's some kind of catastrophic injury or damage to the building. With that, uh, I think we will take a quick break uh, and we'll come back soon. Very good. 